I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me and heard my cry for help. He brought me up from a desolate pit and out of the muddy clay and set my my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear, and they will trust in the Lord. How happy is anyone who has put his trust in the Lord and has not turned to the proud or to those who run after lies. Lord my God, you have done many things. Your wondrous works and your plans for us, none can compare with you. If I were to report and speak of them, they are more than can be told. You do not delight in sacrifice and offering. You open my ears to listen. You do not ask for a whole burnt offering or a sin offering. Then I said, See, I have come. In the scroll it is written about me. I delight to do your will, my God, and your instruction is deep within me. I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. See, I do not keep my mouth closed, as you know, Lord. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I spoke about your faithfulness and salvation. I did not conceal your constant love and truth from the great assembly. Lord, you do not withhold your compassion from me. Your constant love and truth will always guard me. Good morning. It was just a few weeks ago that we were listening to Jonah pray from the belly of a great fish. He was praying because he had been saved. This is what he has to say. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit. Lord, my God, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's what Jonah had to say. And today we find King David praising God for rescuing him from a past pit. The psalm is thought to have been written later in David's life. So he's had a chance to go through a lot of stuff and look back on a long history of pit rescues by his faithful God. I resonate with this psalm because the older I get, the better perspective I have for the way that God has used in the pit experiences in my life. Each and every time, while it may have been painful, I moved forward in my relationship with him. I don't believe we can live lives on this earth without ending up in the pit on occasion. And we can either choose to waste them or surrender them. I've wasted my share, and I'm still learning how to surrender them, so this will not be a sermon on six steps for getting out of the pit. I'm glad you're here this morning, and uh, if you don't know me, my name's Kevin Perry. I have the honor and privilege of serving as pastor for shepherding here at New Eden. And like uh, like Josh said, normally Joel, our pastor for preaching and oversight, would bring the message. But I'm really hoping that during this summer in the Psalms, he's able to get a little bit of summer rest. So back to David and his praise for God's rescue from a past pit. The first five verses, he's recounting his experiences, what he did, what God did, what he hopes his hearers will learn. So let's read again verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me and heard my cry for help. The virtue of waiting on God is something that we see as a pattern throughout Scripture and very frequently in the Psalms. And I love the honesty of David. 
He's very clear that patient waiting does not necessarily exclude crying, crying out to God. Waiting in our culture has a very negative reputation. We tend to see it as something bad. In fact, we tend to see it as something we ought never have to do. Anytime we wait, the idea that we're being unproductive tends to rush in. That's our American way, you know, bootstrap yourself, make sure you get something done. But it is often seen as an irritation. I don't think biblical waiting is the same as when you're in the doctor's office and it's been 30 minutes past your appointment time. I don't think you're just sitting there twiddling your thumbs trying to find something on Instagram or in the magazines. Growing up working with my father, I was often told to hold something. So basically, when we were working together, I would hold the other end of the board And dad would be trying to either screw or nail the end that he had in. And I can remember him telling me, all right, hold what you got. Now, my boys and my wife have laughed. They said that they may actually put that on my tombstone because they have heard it so many times working with me. Hold what you got. And it was that very intense hold what you got because if it moves just a little bit, we got to start over. And so they quite often were in a pretty big strain. They may have even been down there on the other end pleading, hurry, Dad, hurry, or hurry, Kevin. Waiting is seldom comfortable. We may feel that we're at our breaking point when God is continuing to instruct us to hold, hold. I agree with David that crying out to God in these moments, is that's about the best use I can think of of our time. When we find ourselves waiting, tell him. So David is talking about this past experience he had. And he says in verse 2, He brought me up from a desolate pit out of the muddy clay and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear, and they will trust in the Lord. So God didn't just rescue David. He took him out of muddy clay, he set his feet on a rock, and then he secured his steps going forward. So a plan came out of the pit. Giving God the credit for putting a song in his mouth, to me, means that what David is saying is, this is what I was feeling. I'm not doing this because it's a chore. I'm doing this because I'm on burst if I don't get it out. Our praise most often impacts others when it's authentic and it's generated from our experience of God. That's what David was doing. He knew that this praise was going to cause others to turn to God. Praise that's rooted in begrudging obedience or just religious habit, it just doesn't have the same effect. Now David turns to a very critical option that folks have. In verse 4, he says, How happy is anyone who has put his trust in the Lord and has not turned to the proud or to those who run after lies? This thing was written a long time ago, but that's just as true today in 2022 as it was when David wrote it. That's still the option, and it's still what we see people doing. The world offers us all sorts of advice about taking pride in ourselves about self-care, about self in general. They make it sound healthy, 
by calling it self-confidence. But I'm afraid that what they're teaching us is pride. If we're not careful, that's where we'll land is confidence in ourselves, which also means if you dump all the responsibility on me, then I'm the one that's got to solve it. I don't want it that way. That's the last thing I want. I do not want confidence in myself. What I want is a growing confidence in my Lord, a growing confidence that, yes, in my flawed state, I'm going to mess it up. That does not mean that God has not got my mistakes covered, that he's actually got my sin covered, my intentional stuff that I do is covered. Solving problems the world's way it's very seldom rooted in Scripture, but it is an ever-tempting alternative to trusting God. See, Romans 12.2 exhorts us. It says, do not be conformed to the ways of the world. Well, if that's what it wants us to do, we're going to have to do some evaluation to see if we've already done it. i got to actually ask the honest question, where, Lord, have I conformed to the ways of the world? Where am I looking at it through their wisdom? Where am I trying to solve my problems? Am I doing it with what I'm being taught by the world, or am I doing it with your word? The Spirit has written the truth in our hearts. If we even begin to examine our plans and our past actions, what we're going to find is that we already know we already know whether that wisdom was from above or whether it was from the earth. I mean, we will avoid asking the question because we sometimes don't want to know the answer. But both with what has happened in the past and what, is what our plans are going forward, if we set that in front of the Holy Spirit and we say, is this of you? We already know the answer. And James comes along in the third chapter of his epistle, and he actually gives us a good metric, kind of a, a litmus test when we want to look at wisdom. He says the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. I dare us to hold these words up to our motives. To look and actually ask, can I say that I am in alignment with those? The question really boils down to, are we willing to evaluate at all? David evaluated, and he came away realizing what God had given him. And then he ends up landing exactly where the apostle John did. You know, we just got finished not too long ago with John. In verse 5, David says this, Lord my God, you have done many things. Your wondrous works and your plans for us, none can compare with you. If I were to report and speak of them, they are more than can be told. And you may remember this from the last verse of John's gospel. You remember what he said? And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. These folks are keeping track. These folks are remembering. We often get the message that we should forget and move on. And what we have to remember is that God spent Genesis to Revelation telling us, hey, the past matters. Do you remember what I did? And do you remember what you did? 
Then do you remember what then I did? Keep that in mind. Tell it to your children. Make sure you pass it on to the next generation. These are words of men who have experienced so much in God that they have just rightly lost count of his grace towards his people. His people are left overwhelmed and in awe. And as we follow Jesus, we're going to experience God in ways that will grow our faith and confidence in him. Mature followers of God are not just living from their intellectual understanding of God, from the scriptures. That's, that's where they learned the truth. That's where they came to know the truth. Where did it settle deep in our heart? It settled there because they actually experienced it. David's words are now going to shift to something that's a messianic double meaning. And the reason that I can confidently say that's what's going on is because the writer of Hebrews referred back to it. So that makes it easy on me. Look at verse 6 through 8. David says, You do not delight in sacrifice and offering. You open my ears to listen. You do not ask a whole burnt offering or a sin offering. And then I said, See, I have come. In the scroll it is written about me. I delight to do your will, my God, and your instruction is deep within me. Now, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, the words are a little bit different. He was quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But here's what he had to say. Therefore, as he, which is Jesus, was coming into the world, he said, you did not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. And then I said, see, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, God. And after he says, you did not desire or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. He then says, see, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. When the writer says in verse 9, he takes away the first, he's referring to the sacrifice and the offerings. And when he says to establish the second, he's referring to God's will, the offering of Jesus once for all. Jesus did the will of God. Did he struggle and did he wrestle and did he agonize over it? Yes. That's why we're given the story of what happened at Gethsemane. But in the end, he chose God's will. What happens for the psalmist in verse 9 and 10 can happen for us also. When we come to the realization, when we actually believe the truth, that it's not sacrifice and offering that God wants from us, it's actually his, our delight in him that he wants for us. Let me say that again. I stumbled. It's not sacrifice and offering that God wants from us, but instead delight in himself for us. And then our response will be the same. Look at verse 9 and 10. I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. See? I do not keep my mouth closed. As you know, Lord, I did not hide your righteousness in my heart. 
I spoke about your faithfulness and salvation. I did not conceal your constant love and truth from the great assembly. Our response to what God has done through Jesus Christ cannot be kept to ourselves. What David is saying is, I, when you read that, if you're, if you're reading real fast and you're not careful, you can think, what, what do you mean, David, that you didn't hide Jesus? I mean, uh, God's righteousness in your heart? I would think that's what we're supposed to do, is hide God's righteousness in our heart. And yes, David did that. But what he's talking about here is that, yeah, I not only hid it in my heart, but I didn't leave it there. I didn't stop. I spoke. I was faithful to share what you have done for me. David's audience was different than ours. He had a great assembly. I mean, he was the king. I get it. Our, our audience is not the same. But still, we speak of God's righteousness to those in our sphere of influence. The ones that God places in our path. I don't need to get all bent out of shape about the people I'm not talking to. I need to make sure I'm just faithful to talk to the ones that are standing in front of me. It is his righteousness, God's. It is his righteousness, his faithfulness, his salvation, his constant love that will be on our lips if we have experienced them. And before we forget, Hebrews 12.1 points to an even greater assembly, even a greater assembly for us. That verse starts out, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Now, a little context. This is right after Hebrews chapter 11, what we call the Hall of Faith, where the writer of Hebrews is listing off all these people that lived by faith. I actually believe that the writer is referring to all those who have walked with God and are now with him in heaven. Our faithful testimony of who God is what he's done for us in the cross of Jesus, and what it means that he rose again, and who we are because of him, it it doesn't stop with what we just see right now. There are going to be reverberations and ripples of what happens with the words that spill out of our mouth about how awesome God is that we may not ever even get to know about until we get to heaven. And that's okay. I don't have to know it all now. In fact, it may be grace on God's part that he doesn't burden me with knowing it all now. Don't make the mistake of judging the Spirit's work through your testimony, your proclamation. Don't make the mistake of judging that from just what you can see in the moment. There's a whole lot more coming. The rest of the story is going to be told one day. David continues to speak truth that he's learned from his experience in verse 11. Lord, you do not withhold your compassion from me. Your constant love and truth will always guard me. These words are from a man who has walked a lifetime with God. He's experienced this compassion. At times, when if you know David's story, it seems unthinkable that God was looking at him compassionately. He felt the constant love, the never-changing truth, and he lived in the protection that they provided. These, These are not the words of a man who's hoping it's true, who's just wishing it was true. This is testimony from a man who's been in numerous pits, and he has never seen God fail him. 
But now, he returns to his current circumstances. Verse 12, For troubles without number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me. I am unable to see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my courage leaves me. You know, the reason I only had him read the first 11 verses when we started is because if that's all you took from this psalm, this is just one big psalm of praise for what God did in a past pit. But now we get to verse 12 and we find out, wait, wait, wait. David's actually writing all this as he's in a current pit. This praise is pouring out of him while he is in a pit. It's not the same one. What he's saying is, I'm in a pit again. But I'm remembering what you did all the previous times I was in a pit. It's also clear that David is surrounded by troubles, but he's honest once again. He acknowledges the fact that it's his iniquities that have caught up with him. That these troubles, they're actually tied to his sin. They're blinding him, and basically they can't be counted, and his courage is gone. He is a man humiliated and taking no confidence in himself. So then, in verse 13, he makes his plea, all right? He hadn't pleaded for anything yet. Verse 13, he says, Lord, be pleased to rescue me. Hurry to help me, Lord. David prayed bold prayers. David didn't mind just walking right into the throne room and saying, God, I've messed it all up, so I need you to fix it. And this is a pattern in his psalms. You read his other psalms. If he makes a mistake, David does not think it's his job to fix it. I mean, that's the essence of the gospel. And David is writing this stuff a thousand years before Christ showed up to explain it to us. Somehow through the Spirit, David already understood. I did break it. It is my fault. I just can't fix it. And that's the way he felt when somebody else broke it. You broke it. And it's not my fault. And God, is still your job to fix it. I love this guy. He actually gets it. He's not looking inside himself for the answer. That's where the world teaches us it is. That's not where David looks. <laughs> and he has the audacity. Okay, he's been all in these pits before. He's in a pit right now. And now he has the audacity to tell God to hurry up. I mean, this is like when your kid is telling you to hurry up, right? It's your three-year-old telling you to hurry up. David doesn't mind going, God, I need it, and I need it right now. Hurry, please. There's so much to be learned about our Heavenly Father from the prayers of broken, helpless sinners who truly know the heart of our gentle and lowly Savior. It's the heart of the prodigal's father when he jumps up off the porch and goes running. He's running down the road toward a wasteful, sinful, hard-headed, foolish, and defeated son. And he's joyful. 
It's the heart of Jesus towards us all. Regardless of whether we're praising him from a mountaintop, we're crying out to him in a pit. Got to remember, we all begin in a pit. Nobody in here that didn't begin in a pit. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And the really bad news is there is no way we can fix it. And that's why this is a, an old reference y'all may not know. There's a fellow named Keith Green was a singer one time, and I just love the way he put it. The goodest news ever is that God is not asking people to fix it. We all begin our journey following God by recognizing our helplessness to get out of that pit and crying out just like David did, Lord, be pleased to rescue me. If you're here this morning and you want God's help, please find one of us and let's talk about where you are. Chris Kinney explained last week about imprecatory prayers. That's one of those fancy theological words, okay? But it's basically the kind where the psalmist is praying for the defeat or the destruction of his enemies. He's, he's calling down God's wrath, or at least he wishes he could. Now listen, these don't teach us what our hearts should be towards the people who work against us or who hurt us. But they do reveal the feelings of the psalmist, and they make it clear that God is not only okay with, but encourages us to just be brutally honest with him. Kevin, tell me what you really want. I want you to smite them, Lord. Okay, well, we can start the conversation there. We're probably not going to stay there, but we're going to start the conversation there. Please, let's just, let's just stop. Let's just rest from this exhausting and worrisome struggle of trying to figure out what we can tell God. I mean, standing on the outside when you're not in it emotionally, you know, standing on the outside looking in, God doesn't have any insecurities. He's not going to get offended. He already knows what's in here. He knows exactly what's in here. He knows why it's there. He knows when it got in here. And he's ready to help us the minute we turn to him. I know you're carrying all that garbage and all that baggage. Why don't we talk about it? David's request in verses 14 and 15, these have his human adversaries in mind. Let those who intend to take my life be disgraced and confounded. Let those who wish me harm be turned back and humiliated. Let those who say to me, aha, aha, be appalled because of their shame. <clears throat> I praise God that David got a resounding yes to this prayer. Now, I don't have any idea what happened to the enemies he was talking about. Because God answered it in a way that was very different than what David could see. He could never dream of the way God was going to answer this prayer. Because he lived about a thousand years before Paul told the Ephesians who the real enemies were. Paul tells us, listen to his words, Ephesians 6, 12. Our struggle, talking to all Christians, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. See, if the person that you think is your enemy has a heartbeat 
then he can't really be your enemy. He might be the one that's pushing back. He might be the one that's causing some hurt and some pain. But he cannot be the enemy. Our real enemy is in the heavenly realms. This is what what I say that Jesus gave a resounding yes. He did it at the cross. If we look in Colossians 2.15, this is what he declares. He, talking about Jesus, he erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them through it, the cross, is what he was referring to. Satan and all those with him are disgraced, confounded, turned back, publicly humiliated and defeated at the cross of Jesus Christ. The ongoing deceit and mocking from our accuser is not going to last forever. The lamb who destroyed the power of sin will one day return as lion to destroy the presence of sin. And those who once said, aha, will bow down and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. In the same way David prayed for his adversaries to get what they had coming, he now shifts his prayer to those who follow God. In verse 16 he says, let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation continually say, the Lord is great. Those who seek will find rejoicing, gladness in God, love for his salvation. It'll put the song of God's greatness in you. Once again, David's not wishing this to be true. He thinks it's inevitable. And I think he's right. I don't want to be satisfied to know that God is great. I know all sorts of stuff. The database is jammed full up here. It's spilling out. Chris will tell you. I know all sorts of stuff, and I believe some of it. And this is a place I don't want to get caught. I don't want to be just knowing God is great. I want to be feeling it because I want it to be bubbling up from absolute settled confidence in my heart that God is absolutely great. I'm done with faking it until I make it. That's what the world teaches. Sadly, that snuck in. You got to be careful. You'll hear folks saying it. All right, but I don't want to fake it until I make it. I want it to either be true in my heart Or I want to sit down with God and go, look, I know it's supposed to be, but it's not. Okay, I get it. That's your eternal truth written in that book right there. And I know I'm supposed to be believing it, but I'm not. And you got to help. You got to fix that. I don't have the ability to just reach in my heart and flip that switch. You got to teach me truth in the inward places like David told me he wanted to in Psalm 51. He saved me by grace. And what I want, what I need, what I cannot live this life without is a whole lot more of it. Every time transformation occurs in me, it's because of God's grace. If there's anything in this world that it is right to be gluttonous about, it's God. Now, even with all this praise, David's still not too timid to ask God to hurry up for the second time. 
Look at verse 17. I am oppressed and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my helper and my deliverer. My God, do not delay. I love how he slips those little ones in there, you know. This is the truth. This is what I believe. But hurry up, please. Believing the Lord is our only hope, praising and thanking him for our past rescues, and turning to him in our current pit experiences does not mean they won't be hard. Doesn't mean there won't be real pain. Praying for God to hurry and asking for the pit to end, that's, that's just how we're going to feel. We humans are not drawn to pain. I've been in a whole lot of pits in my lifetime. And I'm straight up, I dug a whole bunch of them myself. And my behavior in them has been pretty embarrassing when I think back on it. There's a bunch of them where I realize, whoo, I missed the mark on that one. But here's what I've come to realize. They were just the reality of living in a fallen world. Sometimes it was my sin. Sometimes it was somebody else's sin. Sometimes it was a big old combination of them. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what the circumstances are. The answer's still the same. Cry out to God. My pits tend to share a common description when I look back on them. Three things about them that I can think of, pretty much the same in every last one of them. I can't see out. I can't get out on my own. And I can't get comfortable. And what I'm just beginning to learn is that my mental condition and my behavior in a pit are far more dependent on where I am with God than on the circumstances. So instead of me trying to change the circumstances, I want to do something else. I want to do what my father and mother did for me, what other adults did for me when I was a little boy, what I've seen tons of parents do, and what I did for my kids. There's times you're trying to point something out to your child. You're in a crowd. Or whatever it is they're trying to see is just not in their vision at the moment. And what do you do? You, you walk over there and you scoop them up and you put them up in your arm and you get them up real close to you so that your faces are kind of aligned, you know, and then you point. And you say, right there, you see that? And then from that perspective, the kid goes, oh, yeah, I'm with you now. Sometimes it was just something wonderful I wanted my child to see. Sometimes I was trying to help him change his perspective. He couldn't see the good stuff and I was wanting him to see it. And sometimes he just needed to know what daddy was looking at. See, I want to fix my gaze on Jesus. I want to get still with him. I want to be taken deeper into his heart for me and for all those that are in my path. I want the transformation God is doing in me to be complete. I don't want to repeat the experience because I refuse to allow the Spirit to renew my mind or even admit that it needed it. 
I want to experience Jesus drawing me up, pulling my cheek up close to his, pointing in the direction he wants me to look, and seeing it all from his point of view. <laughs>